Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Hello, hello, my dear listeners, and welcome to episode 24 of Criminal Broads, the true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. Who am I? Oh, I'm so glad someone finally asked. My name is Tori Telfer. I'm a writer. My first book is Lady Killers, Deadly Women Throughout History. It's about serial killers of the female persuasion. And I am currently working on a book about con women that... I swear it's going to be so much fun and also scary. Uh, That's going to be coming out sometime in 2020 or 2021. So don't get too excited for that yet. Um, You can read some of my other writings at ToriTelfer.com. You can find out all about me and see some of the other stuff I've done. Like, did you know once I interviewed uh, a woman who survived the Ted Bundy Chi Omega attack? That was a pretty cool opportunity. But enough about me. Today is not the day we talk about my resume, because today we have a very special guest who is incredible at what she does and is just very talented and a wealth of information. So last episode, we did part one of The Women of Jack the Ripper, in which we delved deeply into the controversial theory that Jack the Ripper was actually a woman, Jill the Ripper, a mad midwife, or a jealous doctor's wife, or something like that. Um, Some of you have gotten in touch with me to let me know that you now buy the Jill the Ripper theory, which I'm all about. I promise this podcast is not going to take a turn into total conspiracy theory land, though. So uh, today, part two of The Women of Jack the Ripper... We are taking a much more serious turn into reality. Uh, Today's episode is going to be pretty sad, but sad in an informative way, I hope. We're here today to talk about the victims, the five canonical victims of Jack the Ripper, five women who are in this weird position, I think, in the land of true crime in that, of course, we know that they exist. Um, Many of you could probably name their names or at least some of their names, and we know little things about them. Um, But if you're anything like me, you don't know much more than that. You know Jack the Ripper killed them. You probably know that they were horribly mutilated. Um, You probably know that they were poor women, and you might think that they were all sex workers, but... Uh, Our guest today is going to cast a bright light on all five of their lives. So today you're going to be hearing a lot from... My name is Hallie Rubenhold and I am a social historian and an author. Hallie is here to tell us the stories of these five women. And why is she here right now? Well, her amazing book, which is called The Five, just came out in the U.S. You can buy it wherever books are sold. Um, UK listeners, it's already out there, so check it out. And everyone should also follow her on Twitter, at Hallie Rubenhold. That's H-A-L-L-I-E. R-U-B-E-N-H-O-L-D. She's always posting about things going on in the Jack the Ripper world. Today, uh, like with last episode, it's helpful to have a basic understanding of the Jack the Ripper case before we go into this, because this is not a 
retelling of Jack the Ripper. I'll just give you a one-sentence spark note. Uh, in 1888, in the very poor Whitechapel district of London, an unknown killer, male or female, <laughs> killed at least five women in a pretty similar fashion. Some say he killed more, some say he killed less, uh, and to this day the killer has never been caught. So, today we're going to look into those five women. Um, and, man, it's... Uh, to me, going over these stories, researching them, and interviewing Hallie, it really reminded me how horrible these crimes were. I mean, damn, these were some awful crimes, and they happened so long ago, and in this spooky Victorian England era where everything was different, right, that they feel like ghost stories or like they didn't really happen or they're not really scary because they didn't happen in our world to people we know. But after doing this research, I was just reminded so strongly that these were these were real and these were awful. <laughs> so on that note, enjoy. Um, before we get going, I would also like to say if you like the podcast, please consider supporting me on Patreon. Uh, it's like a monthly sort of patronage support system. You can give a dollar a month or whatever. Um, that's patreon.com slash criminal broads, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash criminal broads. It really helps keep the lights on. Although given the subject of the podcast, yes, I suppose I could do it in the dark. And rate and review on iTunes or wherever if you're liking it, too. Okay, that's all. I'll stop talking, and let's get to the story of Jack the Ripper's five canonical victims and what their lives were really like. of Jack the Ripper, the most famous serial killer in the world, are known to us mostly by photos of their corpses. Google them, or don't if you don't like seeing photos of dead bodies. But if you Google Marianne Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, or Catherine Eddowes, you will almost immediately stumble across black and white photos that look somehow off. The women kind of look like they're sleeping until you notice the strange slant to their mouths, the weird slackness of their faces. If you look closer, you'll see that their necks have been stitched up. The photos of the last victim, Mary Kelly, hardly look human at all. So badly was she mutilated. You look at these photos and you feel horror and nausea, and also a strange, uncomfortable sort of intimacy, an unearned intimacy, like you've stumbled across something that was never meant for your eyes. For over 130 years, the biggest clue that Jack the Ripper left behind was these five mutilated bodies. The bodies of his five main victims were so strangely and deliberately carved up that it seemed like the answer to his identity had to be there somewhere, indicated by a knife slash or buried in a line of an autopsy report. 
And the funny thing is that today we have so much information about these murders that we can go looking for those answers ourselves. We can stare at the photos. We can read that five of Marianne Nichols' teeth were missing, that there was a four-inch incision on the left side of her neck and a jagged wound in her lower abdomen. We can read that Annie Chapman was wearing red and white striped woolen stockings when she died, that Elizabeth Stride had recently eaten cheese and potatoes, that Catherine Eddowes had her uterus and left kidney removed, and that Mary Jane Kelly's heart was cut out. All of this horror from 1888 is now available at our fingertips. And so, the things we know best about these women are the worst things that ever happened to them. Should we be trying to get to know them better? Listen, in general, I understand why we tend to learn more about the killer than about the victims. The killer, after all, is the anomaly, the freak, the one who has to be figured out. The victims are usually ordinary people. Sometimes they're particularly vulnerable ordinary people who've fallen on hard times, like Gary Ridgway's victims. Sometimes they're ordinary people living in suburbia who have no idea that they're being watched by a monster, like Dennis Rader's victims. But they're not the ones who went wrong, who veered off the path, who disturbed the social order by killing, and so we feel less of an urgency to understand who they were and what made them tick. We want to know what made the murderer tick, the one who snuffed them out. But the thing about the murderer who was Jack the Ripper is that by this point in history, we very well may never know what made him tick or who he was why he did what he did. We may never get a chance to definitively pore over his or her biography and childhood head injuries and dark proclivities. The Ripper is a black hole and may always be a black hole, but his victims are not. These five women were more than just clues in a mystery. They were mothers. They were wives. They were daughters. They were deeply troubled, but they were also loved. Here are the five stories behind those terrible photographs. Number one, Mary Ann Nichols, a.k.a. Polly. Like her sisters in death, Polly was born into poverty. And then her life took a turn for the better, and it started to seem like maybe, just maybe, things were going to be okay for her. She was going to get a clean house and a nice family and enough money to buy groceries. But life can be a cruel mistress, and Polly's story reminds us that there is enough vice and brutality and danger in the world to crush a woman. Polly Nichols was um, born in a part of London which was affiliated with the printing trade, bookmaking and um, uh, newspapers. And her father uh, worked peripherally within in the print trade. And um, her mother died young of tuberculosis. Um, and, and Polly was really the, the woman of the house. And then she married a printer. Um, and 
unfortunately, you know, although printing was um, was a trade, was, was a respected trade, a lot of trades just didn't pay very well. And so the housing that they lived in was very poor, very compromised. Um, they lived in a couple of rooms and very bad dwellings. Um, and so when an opportunity came up for Polly and her husband, William, to move into some of the first uh, social housing called the Peabody Buildings, they jumped at it. And they had to apply for this. They had to prove that they were um, a very morally upstanding family, that they didn't drink, that William earned enough money. Um, and these houses, this housing uh, project, first of all, it's quite interesting to point out that it was started by an American philanthropist called George Peabody, who had lived in London. And he wanted to give something back to the people of London. So he created this whole program of social housing. And it was full of all modern conveniences. So there were, you know, all the rooms were heated and they even had indoor plumbing. So they shared a toilet with the with another, um, the other housing unit next to them. There was laundry facilities on the roof. There were bathing facilities in the basement. It was amazing. And so she and William really, you know, took advantage of this. But um, it turned out that William was having an affair with the woman who lived next door. And ultimately, this was the tipping point for Polly. Um, and there were arguments, and eventually, Polly did something incredibly bold for a woman at that time, when there really was no divorce available for poor women. And she walked out on him. When Polly walked out on her husband, she also walked out on her five children. God knows how much this must have hurt her, or how much she hated herself for it. Eventually, William's mistress ended up helping him raise the kids, which must have been like salt in a wound for Polly. She numbed her pain with alcohol, which she was starting to rely on more and more just to get through the day. The law stated that if a woman was living with another man, that her husband could then cut her maintenance. And of course, society was geared in a way that women had to rely on men because women's work didn't pay well. Mm -hmm. So Polly ends up having another relationship with another man or, or a couple of other relationships. And these were monogamous relationships. She lived with this man. William found out, cut the maintenance, which then meant that he and Rosetta could go off and live in sin themselves somewhere else outside of the Peabody buildings because Peabody wouldn't have allowed that. Sure. So, so I mean, it's it's one of these bitter ironies of the Victorian era that was so cruel to women. out of the workhouse she lived with her father for a bit she had problems with him because she was drinking at that stage but who could blame her I mean you know this was a terribly uh, you know emotionally debilitating experience um and she bounced in and out of the workhouse for a while um uh she was given a position um well she was given two opportunities to to redeem herself by working as a domestic servant um in somebody's house we don't know what happened the first time but it didn't work out then she was started sleeping rough as well so you know she was homeless 
And she was uh, picked up in Trafalgar Square during 1887, during a period when there was, there was mass unrest and there were riots around Trafalgar Square in the centre of London. And she was involved in a begging ring. So she was quite a, she was quite a well-established beggar. You know, she had a whole ruse and everything. Um, and, um, and she went back into the workhouse and then she was given an opportunity to redeem herself working for a family um, in a nice house. And she stayed for a couple of months and then she left and it was almost certainly the alcohol that, that, um, that drove her to leave. Um, and she left with clothing, which she then pawned to get more drink. Um, and to pay for her lodgings, and that's when she moved to Whitechapel. During her last night on Earth, August 30th, Polly was trying to find a bed. She didn't have enough money for a room, and so she tried to get a free night at the lodging house where she sometimes stayed, but that didn't work. Wearily, she realized that she was either going to have to come up with a bit of cash to pay for that bed or sleep on the street again. As she prepared to walk out into the darkness, she told the folks at the lodging house that she would be back with the money soon and said, see what a jolly bonnet I've got now? Some think this meant that she was going out to engage in sex work because she was all dolled up, but Hallie says she could have also been planning to pawn the bonnet in order to get some quick cash. We know that she was roaming about until at least 2.30 a.m. on the 31st, so drunk that she was staggering. She was out. She was an. She was drunk, mm-hmm. and she probably sat down um, on a dark street, as you do when you're drunk and you're looking for somewhere to sleep because you don't have a roof over your head. And that's when the Ripper caught up with her. The Ripper caught up with Polly sometime around three thirty a.m. It seems her body was found around three forty-five. She was wearing her pretty bonnet black straw trimmed with black velvet, and men's boots. Her throat was slit, with great violence, said the doctor who first observed her. Her stomach, too, had been sliced up. Her ex-husband, William, was called to identify her at the mortuary. He hadn't seen her in three years. He couldn't believe that he was being called now to look at her body. He stared down at the corpse of his long-ago bride in shock, and then he began sobbing. I forgive you as you are, he said to her. I forgive you on account of what you have been to me. Number two, Annie Chapman. Annie Chapman had escaped poverty once. In fact, she was probably the wealthiest of all the Ripper's victims at one point. She had managed to pull together a comfortable life, an almost middle-class existence. But she had her demons, and like Polly, she was absolutely wrecked by alcoholism. Sadness haunted her, too. 
When she was just a young teenager, an epidemic of scarlet fever and of typhus swept through London, especially through the poorer parts, and four of her siblings died in the span of three weeks. The trauma to her entire family and to her poor young heart must have been almost unbearable. Annie Chapman was born to a father who was um, what was called a trooper in um, the Second Lifeguard. And that is the Household Cavalry. So that was a really, really prestigious regiment. So when you go to London, when you go to Windsor, you will see the people who guard the, the, the palaces. Um, if you go to Whitehall, you'll see men sitting on the horse with the breastplate and the high boots and the feather and the polished cap. That is the household cavalry. Wow. So her father was part of an ex- that was an extremely prestigious regiment. And when he retired, because when men got older, they had to leave the regiment, he became a gentleman's valet. And a gentleman's valet was like, if you could imagine Mr. Bates in Downton Abbey, is <laughs> a very prestigious position within a household working for a gentleman looking after him you are his personal servant and in the hierarchy of servants that is at the top of the ladder with the butler so that was quite a a significant jump in status unfortunately Annie's father like Annie was a chronic alcoholic and he killed himself um, and he cut his own throat and it terribly terribly sad but as a result of that, her mother, her mother and um, her siblings were able to, I strongly believe from a sort of handout that was given by her father's employer, because this was very traditional to do if somebody dies in service, the, uh, a handout is given to the widow. And then they were able to set up in quite a, a kind of lower middle class but middle-class house in a very good part of London, um, which became the family house for decades. Mm. And um, Annie went out to service like her father, and she became a housemaid, which is why she married quite late. She married at 26, because often women in service didn't marry until they were much older, because they had been working, and they didn't have a lot of opportunity to meet men. And John Chapman would have been, well, there's evidence to suggest he was um, her mother's lodger. So her mother let out rooms in the house Mm -hmm. and Annie met him that way. And again, he was quite a prestigious servant as well because he was a gentleman's coachman. So he was, um, you know, he worked for very, for aristocratic families, very wealthy families. And that meant that Annie and John had their own house. John eventually um, started working for a man called Sir Francis Tresberry, who lived on a country estate just outside of Windsor, and they had their own house there. Um, and uh, you know, life was life was pretty good as far as you know it could be for a woman of her class. And she had money to even send her daughters to um, a private girls' school in Windsor. Um, she hired a, a, a day servant to come in and clean for her. So mm-hmm. she was moving up the ladder. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, Annie, like her father, was also an alcoholic. Annie's alcoholism damaged more than just her own body. She'd gotten pregnant about eight or nine times, but only three of her children lived. And those three were deeply affected by her drinking. 
The first died of meningitis at age 12. The second was born with fetal alcohol syndrome. The third was born paralyzed. Still, on the surface, Annie's life was okay, enviable even, to London's residents who had to sleep on the street or labor in the workhouse. She was actually able to afford a professional photograph of her and her husband. She was the only one of the victims who could afford such a luxury, and so she was the only one who, after her death, had a real photograph of her as she had looked in life. But money and little luxuries couldn't save her. It's it's a long way down. It's it's quite a fall, um, but Annie was an alcoholic, and um, her husband and her two sisters, who were teetotalers, um, mm. were responsible for putting her in to one of the first women's um, uh, rehabilitation clinics, um, where she stayed for a year, and she dried out, and she came back, and then there's this apocryphal story about how everything was wonderful except her husband who um uh had to go out to work and you know in the 19th century like a a little bit of alcohol was a cure-all for everything and so you know a little bit of hot whiskey and water will ward off the cold um and so her husband had a little bit of that before he he went out into into the cold evening to go and and uh take his master somewhere and apparently she caught a whiff of the scent of alcohol and it sent her off again and that was the end Mm. that was her descent and after going to rehab she knew this that was her last chance and she couldn't she said she just couldn't kick it she couldn't get the habit and so she and her husband separated and he gave her a 10 shilling maintenance which would have supported her had she gone back to london and lived with her mother or her sisters but they were teetotal Mm -hmm. and annie had already made the decision at that point probably out of terrible shame terrible crippling shame that she was a failure and that she would never ever be sober and went off to live by herself in shame And this is eventually how she came to live in Whitechapel. Annie had escaped poverty and managed to kick her alcoholism once before, but this time, when she fell, she couldn't get back up. The last year of her life was brutal and achingly sad. She had tuberculosis, and she took to selling little handicrafts to make a living. Life was bleak and getting bleaker. Annie is, again, much like... Polly separated from her husband and a woman could not survive without a man. She needed that extra income. And so she met up with a man who we don't know anything about. He just called himself Jack Sivvy. Um, we don't know if Sivvy was his last name and we don't know some, I think there's some speculation that he made wire sieves and that was his job. Um, and, um, she was with him for a while and, um, unfortunately, one day her maintenance stopped. She wasn't getting her maintenance payments and she went to find out what happened from somebody who knew her husband and they said that he was he was dying. Um, and so she walked from London to Windsor in the cold of winter to find out what had happened. Um, and she found out that John was dying and then she walked back and it was said from that point she just completely gave up. During the last days of her life, Annie was so sick that she could hardly stand up. On the last night of her life, September 7th, she, like Polly, had spent all of her money on alcohol, and she didn't have enough to buy a bed for the night. 
So she wandered off into the darkness to find money or a corner in which to sleep. Instead, she met the Ripper. Her body was discovered around 6 a.m. Her stomach had been, quote, entirely laid open. Her uterus was missing. Annie's surviving siblings found out about her death a few days later. They never told their aging mother or Annie's children what had happened to her. They even kept her funeral a secret. They locked their sister's terrible fate away in their hearts forever. Number three, Elizabeth Stride. The Ripper's third victim was not a native Londoner. She was born a sweet farmer's daughter in rural Sweden, but any pastoral bliss she experienced as a child was quickly stripped away from her when she moved to a nearby city and discovered just how cruel the law could be to young girls who didn't behave perfectly. Everyone is always surprised that the third Ripper victim, Elizabeth Stride, was from Sweden. Yeah. Nobody imagines that. Um, so she was born uh, just outside of Gothenburg in a place called Storetumelhead, which was a farming community, and she was the daughter of a farmer. And um, part of what women did in Sweden and in other parts of Europe at that time was you get to a certain age, and because there are very few marriage prospects where you live, and also because you want to earn money for your dowry, you go into domestic service. So she went to Gothenburg, like her sister did, and um, she worked for a family who were property managers in Gothenburg. And we know she was there for a while, and then she moved somewhere else. Now, we don't know how long she was in the other place, but that seems to have been where the trouble started. Because then she next appears in the records, pregnant. Now, something happened in Sweden um, legislation was brought in like almost the year before this happened, which was setting up a program of kind of state regulated prostitution. So, um, there were effectively two lists that were compiled. One was of known prostitutes who operated in the city. And there was a whole force of police who were in charge of this. Mm -hmm. And then there was a second list of suspected prostitutes. So women who had sex outside of marriage. Like, they just got put yeah, on the list? Yep. Yeah. So pregnant <laughs> single women, women living as men's mistresses, um, any sort of a woman who was outside uh, alone at night who was suspected. And what ended up happening is if you go on this prostitutes list, you're basically branded a prostitute. Then you have to, then you cannot get legitimate work. Elizabeth Stride is calling herself a maid for most of this time. So this means that that is how she is viewing herself. What then happens is that anybody who goes on this prostitutes list has to go um, uh, once a week for an inspection to the inspection mm -hmm. house to make sure that you don't have syphilis. 
And Elizabeth, seven months pregnant, single, is found having syphilis. Mm. It's almost, it's most likely that the person who got her pregnant gave her the syphilis because of the how the, the, the disease presents at various times. So she then had to go into the venereal disease hospital and undergo underwent lots of treatments. There was no cure for syphilis at this time. They thought they were treating it, but they weren't. She gives birth um, to a stillborn child. Is never able to have children again. Um, after nine months of working in prostitution, she is taken in by a woman who rehabilitates her, gets her off the prostitutes list, gets her working as a maid again. And then from that point, she is given an opportunity to immigrate to London with a British family who is moving back abroad to a very nice part of London, to Hyde Park. And she's taken on as a maid and she immigrant, immigrates and she never goes back to Sweden again. Around 1869, Elizabeth met a teetotaler named John Stride and the two of them got engaged. They decided to open a coffee house, an antidote to all the bars and pubs around them. And for a while, they were business people, entrepreneurs, self-starters. But the expenses piled up. They fell on hard times somehow. And eventually they lost the coffee house and ended up in the workhouse, a notoriously cruel place that put destitute people to work and were made intentionally terrible so that able-bodied people wouldn't, quote, take advantage of them. The strain of all this was too much for their marriage, and Elizabeth and John soon separated. From that point on, it was as though Elizabeth were doomed. Elizabeth Stride becomes quite a hardened character, and I found tracing the evolution of her character really fascinating. Because in the final decade of her life, she becomes a confidence trickster. At the end of her life, I got the feeling she was saying, screw it. You know, the world is just screwing me. I'm going to screw you back. And it just really came through. So she lied about, there was a big um, uh, maritime disaster on the Thames where a pleasure cruiser called the Princess Alice was um, went down. And there was massive loss of life. And she lied and said that she was part of this disaster and she got out of it and then she played upon people's sympathies and people gave her money. She also defrauded a woman called Mary Malcolm who had obviously very bad eyesight and whose sister was named Elizabeth, long lost sister was named Elizabeth and Elizabeth posed as her sister to get money off of her for years. She got money and handouts off of this woman. She also was involved in this ruse whereby, you know, and this was quite a common thing in the cities, is if you were begging with a baby that wasn't yours, you could get more money. So she was, she was involved in one of these begging schemes. I have no idea how many other schemes. She tried to get money by saying, I think she approached some employer. She, she used to work in a laundry. She said she'd injured, injured her foot. And then after her death, there was no injury to her foot. So, I mean, she tried absolutely everything you could even try. And even, even more tragically, um, after her husband died in the workhouse, she went back. We don't know for how long, but she went back in 1884 to solicitation again. At this point in her story, you'll start to hear the sad refrain that rang through every one of the Ripper's victims' lives. By now, Elizabeth was drinking heavily, burning through her money and wrecking her health. But alcohol wasn't the only explanation for how strangely she acted in her final months. 
she was presenting with symptoms of what might be thought of as tertiary syphilis towards the end of her life. You know, she was becoming very violent. She was also suffering from epileptic fits, which is something that happens in tertiary syphilis. Um, we don't know. Again, we don't know, but it could very well be part of what was going on. Elizabeth's last moments on September 30th are mysterious. No one really knows what she did the night of her death. At some point, she attached a single red rose with a bit of maidenhair fern to her bodice and went off into the night. We have no idea who she spent time with in her the, the end of her life. She lied to everybody. She was a compulsive liar. She lied to the people in her uh, lodging house um, about where, who she was, where she came from, who she knew. Nobody knew anything about her. She kept the world at a distance, which I think is really interesting and really telling about her emotional and mental state. Her body was found around 1 a.m. The man who found her thinks he may have accidentally frightened the Ripper away because Elizabeth wasn't mutilated like the other victims, though her throat had been cut already. She had no family in the entire country to mourn her or to bury her in her Sunday best. Her killer was already a front-page celebrity, but she was slipping back into obscurity. One paper described her funeral as sparse, and she was buried in a pauper's grave. Number four, Catherine Eddowes, a.k.a. Kate. was a bright little girl, born into a family so huge that there was never any question that they'd be anything other than poor. There were too many mouths to feed, too many bodies to clothe. Despite that, Kate went to school and learned to read and write and had a colorful, if difficult, life for a while. But she started to drink at a very young age, and the taste for alcohol never left her. So Catherine Eddowes' life, again, you know, is different from all of the others, but similar in that poverty plays a main, major role. Um, so interestingly, she was the daughter of a union agitator in Wolverhampton. And Wolverhampton and the Midlands, the area called the Black Country in the UK, is like the area of heavy, heavy industry. It was the heart of the Industrial Revolution. You can imagine factories and smokestacks and heavy pollution and coal smoke and this is the world in which into which she was born and um her father was a tin plate worker and he was a firebrand and he uh, was involved in a strike um which brought lots of men out of the factory that he worked in and he was um arrested and prosecuted and sent to prison for that and blacklisted and once you are blacklisted you cannot work in that town anymore. And the union has to get you work elsewhere. So they had to move to London. And so that is how Catherine initially ends up in London. She was one of 12 children. I don't think she had a chance in life because you are so mired in poverty when you are two parents with a family that size. You 
are dependent on your older children going out to work. Um, Catherine was the middle sister of seven sisters. And um, she, uh, she was incredibly fortunate because there was a charity school near her father's factory uh, where, she, where he worked in London. And um, he got her a place in this charity school. And so she had a better education. She can read and write, unlike her other sisters, with the exception of her elder sister, who probably also went to this school as well. Um, and that gave her a little bit, potentially, an advantage in life. However, her parents both died when she was a young teenager, and the family was completely split apart. So both her parents died of tuberculosis. And the elder sisters couldn't afford to, to keep the family, so the younger siblings were sent to the workhouse, and Kate was sent to back to Wolverhampton to live with her relatives, where she worked in a tin factory, which didn't make her happy. And I suspect that at some point in her life, Kate realized that her whole life was going to be factory working until she got married, and then it was going to be her mother's life of just and the lives of every working class woman, which was just burying children until you just almost dropped dead. Mm -hmm. um, and um, she ran away to Birmingham to live with her, Birmingham was a nearby town, uh, is a nearby town to live with her uncle, who was a semi-professional boxer, who she probably thought was a more interesting person to live with. But she had to work in a factory there too. Then she met a man called Thomas Conway, who, was an Irish ballad seller. And he traveled around the country selling ballads and little chapbooks, which were short story books, and led this itinerant life, roaming the country, um, uh, writing. She did the writing. It was said that he did, except I found evidence that he was totally illiterate and she could write. So if anybody was doing the writing of these ballads, it was Kate, not um, Thomas. And um, they sold ballads. They performed at market days and also at hangings as well. These were adventurous days in Kate's life. And perhaps you could argue that Kate was exercising her creativity as she wrote down these stories and traveled with her husband. But it was a hand-to-mouth existence without a luxury in sight. It was tough, physically tough, which is probably why when Kate, they after they had their first child, um... They then, at some point, made a decision to settle in London. And, and Kate's sisters then had married and had children of their own, so there may have been somewhat of a decision to be nearer to her sisters. Although she kept her own distance, we don't know why that was. It could very well have been because she was a victim of domestic violence, and we know that Thomas started beating her very badly. We also know she gave as good as she got because she, she swung back at him. There are accounts that her sister gave of her turning up on their doorstep with blackened eyes and saying, I wish my life was like yours and just being incredibly unhappy. Eventually, Kate gathered up all the strength she had and managed to leave Thomas, breaking the notoriously difficult to break cycle of domestic violence. Later, she met a new man. This lover wasn't abusive, but he wasn't perfect either. She met up with a man called um, John Kelly, who was very placid, but probably because he was as much of an alcoholic as she was at that stage. And her family hated him. And the weird thing is that the family 
when they were interviewed about it, said, well, at least with, you know, Thomas Conway, he may have beat her, but at least she had a stable home. <laughs> well, that's the Victorian oh. mindset, you know. Right. A woman without a home was nothing. But, you know, John Kelly couldn't even give her a home. They lived in lodging houses. And they were beggars, and they traveled around the country, you know, um, picking up itinerant work, picking fruit, that type of thing. And sleeping rough also. And, um, and this was, you know, um, you know, drinking whatever they could get their hands on. And one night, um, they had no money for their lodgings and Kate had been drinking and, um, she had nowhere to stay that night and, uh, she ended up meeting up with the Ripper. Kate was murdered on the same night as Elizabeth Stride and she was discovered about an hour after someone found Elizabeth's body. Perhaps the Ripper, interrupted in his mutilation of Elizabeth, found himself unsatiated and went hunting for another victim. Earlier that night, Kate had been so drunk she was singing and cursing to herself on the street, and she was soon arrested because of this. By 1 a.m., the policeman released her. She was still intoxicated, but cognizant enough to sass him as she left. He told her to pull the door all the way shut when she went out, and she responded, All right. Good night, old cock and then didn't shut the door all the way. Her body was discovered around 1.45 a.m. Whatever horrible ceremonies the Ripper didn't get to do on Elizabeth, he made sure to do on Kate. Her face was mutilated, her throat cut, her intestines were pulled out and draped over her shoulder, her entire abdomen was sliced open, her uterus had been taken. Her left kidney, too. When her sister was called to identify the body, she began screaming. Oh, my poor sister, that she should come to such an end as this, she cried. Unlike Elizabeth, Kate's funeral was attended by hundreds of people. An entire community come together to protest the absolute desecration that the Ripper was wreaking on one of their own. Number five, Mary Jane Kelly. The last and most horrific of the Ripper murders happened to a woman that we barely know. In fact, we know so little about her that she's become a sort of placeholder for conspiracy theories and for romanticization. She was the youngest victim, the prettiest, killed in the most gruesome fashion. You could say she's become a sort of symbol instead of a person, a symbol of buxom, sexy young womanhood, cut down in its prime, a cautionary tale that also happens to titillate. She was the youngest. She was also the one who was engaged in sex work, so she's the most overtly sexual by virtue of her profession. Mm -hmm. She was described as very attractive, buxom, long hair. And there's a lot of fetishization of her. You know, 25-year-old attractive sex worker, brutally killed, mysterious. Uh, something kind of kind of gross going on there.
Mary Jane Kelly is completely enigmatic, and I doubt we will ever know anything about her, because for 130 years people have been trying to figure out who Mary Jane Kelly was, and after she was killed, there are people who went to investigate her story in Wales, in Ireland, nobody could turn up anyone who knew anything about her. And I would say, and I say this with some conviction, that the reason why is almost absolutely that her name was not Mary Jane Kelly. Her name was something else. And we know this because nobody came forward when her story was popularized um, in the media. I mean, the, the newspaper stories of the, of the Ripper, especially the, by the time she was killed, were going around the world. Every newspaper in Britain, newspapers in America, newspapers, you know, continental Europe, we're covering this story. Not a single person came forward to say they knew Mary Jane Kelly. Wow. Which makes you think her name was not Mary Jane Kelly. And I think she changed her name to Mary Jane Kelly when... No, I strongly believe, and so do other people, because there is very compelling evidence to suggest this, that she was people trafficked to Paris. And um, uh, she lived... She was involved in upscale prostitution in Knightsbridge, which is a very posh part of London, and was then. Um, and she was... Uh, she, she talked about that she went to Paris. And she went to Paris with a gentleman, but she didn't like what she found there, and she came back. She had left in a hurry. She left her belongings at her former lodging house, uh, not her lodging, her, 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 her residence, which was run by a madam. Um, and she, all of this fits the profile of somebody who left in a hurry or left under some sort of false pretense. You know, people traveled without their baggage at the time. The baggage was sent onward. Somebody would have told her, we're sending on your trunks of clothes. And the trunks weren't sold up, sent on because they knew where she was going to. So when she came back, she did not go back to Knightsbridge or the West End. And a woman in her of her standing in prostitution would have had lots of people she could call on. If she fell out with her madam, there were any number of men or other, uh, you know, uh, pimps or madams who would have taken her in. But the fact that she went to the Ratcliffe Highway, which is part of Whitechapel, and hid out demonstrates that she didn't want anybody to know who she was or where she was. And I'm pretty sure that's why she changed her name to Mary Jane Kelly. With a new name and a new identity, Mary Jane tried to survive in the rough, filthy streets of Whitechapel. Just like the other victims, she was a heavy drinker. A glass of gin was cheap in those days, about the price of a woman, in fact, and many people were desperate for something to dull the edge of poverty and hunger and danger and cold. So she's staying in basically a brothel. Um, she stayed in two brothels, and then she met a man who she lived with for a while. And that didn't work out, and then she went back to street soliciting in uh, Whitechapel, and she met a man called Joseph Barnett, who she then lived with for about 18 months. He lost his job, and because he lost his job, she then, it is believed, when, or she was threatening to go back into prostitution to pay their rent. And he couldn't take this, and so he left her. And they were living in this little room at 13 Miller's Court, 
which was a ground floor room. Um, and he, uh, Joseph Barnett had left her and within a week, that's when the Ripper got to her. And this is the only indoor killing. One of the things that I postulate, which makes a lot of sense, is that the women were killed in their sleep. Because if you're homeless, um, you're sleeping on the street. This was the final murder and the modus operandi would have changed. So the killer was then, uh, I mean, it was mass hysteria in London, in Whitechapel especially, and everybody would have been on the lookout for somebody. So to kill indoors, but to kill somebody asleep indoors would have been the next progression. And how would the Ripper have gotten indoors to kill Mary Jane? Well, a few months before her murder, Mary Jane had lost her keys, and so she broke the window right next to her front door so that she could reach in and unlatch the door from the inside. That window remained broken for weeks and was still broken by the time of her death. Anyone could have gotten in. Before she went to bed, Mary Kelly had been singing a song called A Violet from Mother's Grave, singing it so insistently that she'd disturbed her neighbors. At some point, she fell silent. The Ripper crept into her room sometime in the very, very early morning of November 9th and crept out again after performing what some thought was the work of the devil. Her body was found before 11 a.m. She was the Ripper's ultimate destructive work, his greatest and most horrific achievement. She had been taken apart, piece by piece, as though he wanted to make her something that wasn't human anymore. Her face was almost unrecognizable as a face. Her breasts were cut off, as were large swaths of her skin. Her viscera were removed and placed in strange locations. Her liver, for example, was found between her feet. Her bed was soaked through with blood. As with Kate, hundreds attended Mary Jane's funeral. You could say they'd been waiting with horror for her death. They knew another one was coming. She was suddenly Whitechapel's girl, even though no one really knew her. As her funeral procession wound its way through the streets of Whitechapel, people cried out from doorways, God forgive her, we will not forget her. five victims of Jack the Ripper were five very different women with different backgrounds, desires, families, illnesses, but they were also tragically similar. All five of them at some point seemed to hit an obstacle that they could not recover from. They'd be doing okay, life would beat them down, but they'd get back up again until suddenly they couldn't get up. Whether they were too sick, too drunk, or like Elizabeth Stride, too angry at the world, these women, especially the first four, were all on a sickening downward slide toward the bottom when the Ripper found them. So much about their lives and the world around them made them vulnerable, like the fact that they may have been sleeping on the street, or considering sleeping on the street, or sleeping behind a broken window when they were killed. Like their alcoholism, the illness eating away at their brains, the dirt, the poverty, the fact that no one cared, or the fact that their families did care, but they personally were too broken down and humiliated to ask for help anymore. 
A mere four days before Elizabeth Stride's death, she was at a lodging house discussing the Ripper murders with a group of other women, and one of them cried out bitterly, We're all up to no good. No one cares what becomes of us. Perhaps some of us will be killed next. But the thing that made these five women more vulnerable than anything else was the simple fact that they were women. These were very obviously gender crimes. One thing that we know is the Ripper did not have sex with his victims. Everybody assumes, oh, he raped them and then he killed them. No, no, he did not have sex with his victims. There is no evidence at all. Um, the dismemberment often targeted parts of women's genitalia, a womb, and, and, and you know. Um, and um, I strongly believe that this is, these are gender-related crimes. They're not sexual crimes. It may have been that the Ripper got off sexually doing this, but it was, he was attacking women, and he was attacking women in a very, very visible way mm-hmm. in, in what they represented to him. Polly. Annie, Elizabeth, Kate, Mary Jane. Five brave, struggling, imperfect women who spent years clinging to life despite the fact that life had shown no mercy to them. Five women who never thought they'd be famous, but whose mortuary photographs are now available as paintings that you can buy on Etsy. A painting of Mary Jane Kelly's gore-drenched body will set you back $670.24. Five women who joked with friends despite the fact that it was 2 a.m. and they didn't have enough money for a bed. Five women whose families desperately missed them when they were gone. Five women whose deaths provided five clues, yes, but who were worth remembering for so much more than just their slit throats and mutilated bodies and their connection to a famous monster. Five women worth remembering for who they were in life, too. Thank you so much for listening folks that's all for today i hope you enjoyed these five little stories of tragedy um go to instagram.com slash criminal broads if you want to see i'll post the photo of annie chapman in life i'm not going to post the photos of the corpses they're just disturbing and you know they're all over the internet if you feel like you want to see them um, but i'll post annie chapman's photo and if i can dig anything else up i'll post it there too Um, and next episode, we will be back to what we know best, broads who are criminal, criminal broads, women who've committed crimes. Thank you for bearing with me during this Jack the Ripper, um, 
byway that we've been on. If you want more Jack the Ripper content, you're in luck. There is so much of it, but I urge you to check out The Five by Hallie Rubenhold. It is a really beautifully written book. It is very, um, extremely well-researched, very empathetic, and of course, as you've probably noticed already, it's heartbreakingly sad. Um, but it's a great book and a great addition to the Jack the Ripper canon. All right. Um, before we go, I have four beautiful, talented, and genius patrons to thank. This episode's patrons are Michelle Wilzelski, Mary Alice Cafiero, Katie Warner, and John Troxel. Thank you so much to you for. I really, really appreciate it. You're the best. To everyone else, um, please rate and review the podcast and tell your friends about it. It really helps. And check out patreon.com, which is also linked in the show notes, if you would like to support the pod. All right, have a great couple of weeks, and I will talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty, guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.